0: Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination.
1: Are you exhausted by the culture war?
0: If they don't like it here, they can leave.
1: Not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Over the last few years, the word narcissism has become an increasingly common word in American public discourse. If you've followed the rise and fall of Mars Hill, this was one of the constant questions around Mark Driscoll. Was he a narcissist? If you're a political junkie, then you've heard the conversation around Donald Trump. Is he a narcissist? And as I've heard these conversations, I often found myself asking questions. First and foremost, what is a narcissist? Are we talking about a clinical definition of a narcissist? Or are we talking about something else, someone who is proud, arrogant, self-consumed. And that's why I was so grateful to pick up Dr. Chuck DeGroat's new book, When Narcissism Comes to the Church. I appreciated this book on a personal level because he's not just trying to talk about clinical narcissism. He's talking about narcissistic patterns in the lives of everyday people. And I think like anyone, I saw parts of myself in that book. And I love when God helps me to repent and reflect on my own sins. But more broadly than that, his book highlighted the fact that narcissism may be a serious problem inside of churches and understanding how we define it, how we think about it, how we respond to it may be one of the largest challenges facing the church in the future. Dr. Chuck DeGroat is a professor of counseling and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary. He's also a faculty member of the Soul Care Institute. He has years of experience as a therapist. And as you'll see in this interview, that really comes to bear in our conversation. I think that if you're a honest, self-reflective person, you're going to see bits of yourself in this conversation. And beyond that, you might find yourself asking some helpful questions about how we think about leadership, not just in the church, but far beyond that in our businesses in our politics and in our families. Chuck, it's great having you on the show today. Thanks, Patrick. Good to be here. So today we're talking about narcissism, which I have to admit might sound a little bit strange to our audience because we tend to focus on more cultural and political issues. And so I think it's important to talk about why we're discussing this, because for some people, they'll think of narcissism as a narrow individual concern for psychologists or therapists. But you seem to think that narcissism has a tremendous impact on our body politic, on our institutions, and of course, the church. You wrote the book, When Narcissism (laughs) Comes to the Church. But before we get to those broader questions... I'd love just to start here. Could you define narcissism for us?
0: Yeah, there are different ways of defining it. With the book, I try to be a bit more expansive in my understanding of it, right? Because there's that sort of narrow DSM-5 definition, right? Sort of the classic psychological definition that gets at attributes like grandiosity, entitlement, attention-seeking, Low empathy, which is always a new one for people when they're thinking about narcissism because they think of the power and the entitlement, but they don't think of that low empathy that we see in classically narcissistic folks. And then we also generally see what we call relational and vocational impairments. In other words, if you're elevated on the narcissistic spectrum, you're bound to encounter conflict in your life, let's just say, right? And so there's that sort of classical definition that emphasizes grandiosity. I happen to think that narcissism shows up in a number of different forms, and we can almost go back to Genesis chapter 3, right? And that's where I sort of begin that conversation with that sense of control that you see right there in seed form in Genesis 3, right? And that control can show up in lots of different ways in our lives. We can control aggressively, and we can control passive aggressively. But we do know that we can get into this if you want, that when we talk about narcissism, we're not talking about some sort of disease. We're talking about something that emerges out of the trauma of one's life. And so it becomes sort of a way of coping in the world when it doesn't feel like there's any other way of
1: coping, but it looks a lot like that grasping of Adam and Eve that we see in the garden. So one of the ways you say we cope is the development of what you call a false self. So could you describe what the false self is and how the false self manifests in narcissism?
0: Yeah, I think that's language that you'll find in Christian spirituality. That's language you'll find in psychology. I think when I think about the false self, again, I go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve hid, right? And Mm -hmm. there's this sense that in hiding, we craft some sort of contingent self, some sort of other self, you know, this self-protective self, right, that allows us to navigate our fear, our shame. Ultimately, when we're talking about a false self, we're talking about a self-protective part of us. And it's a sort of refusal to live in God's economy of things, you might say because we're too frightened to face God, we're too frightened to face ourselves in the midst of our sin. And so, yeah, a false self, I don't think that there's just one false self in us. I think that we all operate with a number of selves. There's probably a version of me that comes onto a podcast that is different (laughs) than the version of me that you saw fighting with my wife about what we're going to have for dinner last night, you know. But ultimately, it's about a kind of
1: self-protective way of living in the world, living and managing the contingencies of life it's a terminology or a way of thinking that's helped me a lot, especially in some of my friendships. We've begun to use the terminology of false self. And it is really all about self protection, you know? And that's what's interesting to me about my own false self or false selves, as you just said, is that the false self has really a complete lack of ability to connect with other people because it's always in the protective mode, right? It's all about protecting this deep down part of me that is insecure, that's afraid, that's hiding, that doesn't want to be touched, that doesn't want to be reached. And so for me, the false self sometimes comes up in the form of, I'm going to be charismatic and I'm going to be, you know, overly rambunctious and overly happy and overly optimistic. Other times it comes out if I'm like an intellectual circles, I want to use $10 words. I want to seem as smart as everybody else in the room. But ironically, and you can feel it in the moment, the distance between you and the people who you desperately want to connect with or who you want to impress is growing as the false self is growing. So it kind of almost creates this feedback loop that you can't escape from. But one of the things you connected it to was narcissism specifically. So how does our desire to protect ourselves. How is that narcissistic?
0: There are writers that say that narcissism is a failure to or an inability to metabolize shame. And so we all wrestle with a deep sense of shame. I think that there's a primal shame that goes back to the origin story, you know, that we're wrestling with this sense of, can we live in this world? Can we live before God? Can we live before one another, right? We were born in and for relationship, in and for connection with God, right? And there's something about Adam and Eve's grasping something about the fall left us now ashamed. In the midst of that, we need to compensate in some way. We don't want to live like you and I are not going to have a conversation about all of the shame that we bear in our, at least I don't think we are today, Patrick. (laughs) No, I'm not planning on it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Those are things that happen in this office with people in therapy where we talk about the parts of us that we're really insecure about, really afraid of, right? But we live out of these, as I said before, contingent or compensatory selves, you might say. And narcissism is a way of showing up in the world self-protectively that looks more defensive. It looks a little bit more like, just to use a metaphor, like a fortress. As a result of, and this gets a little bit situational because it looks different for everyone, but generally as a result of some sort of pain or woundedness, trauma or childhood abuse, We develop unconsciously a defense system, right? And that defense system allows us to kind of hide behind our fortress walls and throw grenades over the wall at others. It allows us to live in a way that we don't have to be impacted by others. We don't have to be vulnerable before others. We don't have to face our own shame. And of course, with that, we may want to get to this. The way to healing is to get behind those walls, to allow one within your walls. And
1: that is an excruciatingly vulnerable thing to do. Yeah, you know, whenever I think people hear the term narcissism, we often think about the grandiose, the grandiosity. But you talk about both grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. So we've talked a little bit about grandiosity. What is vulnerable narcissism?
0: Yeah, that's the flip side of the coin. Instead of looking like a kind of proud superiority. I often say it looks a little bit more like a smug superiority. Instead of looking more aggressive, it looks more passive aggressive. It's not the guy that stands on the stage of a church of 10,000 and says, look what I built here. It's the guy that stands on the stage before 50 people, and he's like, no one understands how faithful we've been. And when people leave, it just reminds us that we're being more faithful than we knew we were you know, that kind of sense it's more passive aggressive, it's more smug. It's there's a woundedness that I experience on the face of vulnerable narcissism that I don't always experience on the face of a more grandiose narcissism. You could almost tell that he's in pain and that pain sort of oozes out sideways in relationship. And so he's kind of a walking wounded person. Whereas with grandiose narcissism, we don't see that
1: woundedness right away, although it's there. That's really interesting. Do you think that this has always been a part of narcissism? Because uh, that kind of noble woundedness to me is something, I'm a millennial, it's something that I feel like I see a lot in my own generation. We almost turn victimhood into a virtue. And so I sometimes see myself (laughs) trying to highlight all the ways that I've been hurt or harmed because it brings me a sense of nobility before my peers. So is that something new or is that something that you think has always existed?
0: I think it's always existed. I think with all forms of narcissism, it evolves, it takes on different forms, right? And it becomes sort of culturally encapsulated. What you're talking about, I think, Is really important today, and we ought to name it, right, is this kind of victimhood as status, a status that requires no real inner work. It requires no spiritual growth or maturity, right? It's just sort of claimed as I'm owed something, I'm entitled something, right? And so it operates in some of the same ways psychically, you might say psychologically, as grandiose narcissism. And yet today it feels like, I would say with both, it feels like when you touch it, you can punch back, right? And you can feel that with both grandiose narcissism and vulnerable narcissism that sort of elevates victimization.
1: Yeah, well, I was really helped by the category of vulnerable narcissism. Again, it might be to some degree generational because as I look at maybe my Gen X and Boomer peers, grandiosity in many ways was celebrated. You know, you're successful, you're doing the big thing. And again, amongst my own generation, it feels as though if you wanna have status, if you wanna have a voice, you have to kind of put in the foreground the ways that you've been hurt, harmed, disappointed, Pointed because that's going to give you automatic, like you said, maturity, wisdom, credibility with everybody else. And so it was really good. I mean, I even thought about it in my arguments with my wife because that's for sure one of my things that I tend to do is I go to the victim place of you're hurting me and that means I'm right. <laughs> and it is a form of narcissism. And there's just a way that your book tremendously helped me on a personal level. The other thing that your book really helped me with is that while it seems to me that you definitely have a category for clinical narcissism, you warn against just slapping labels on people. And and the sense I got is that, in some senses, we're all kind of narcissists. You know, Christopher Lash, who you talk about, said that we live in a culture of narcissism. So, do you think that's a true statement? I mean, are we all narcissists now? Are we all on the narcissist spectrum? Yeah, that's interesting cultural commentary, and I think we're swimming in the
0: waters of narcissism. I don't think that that makes us all narcissistic. I do think that we participate in ways that we ought to be aware of. So when there is this kind of finger pointing or this sort of blame shifting that gets really black and white, right? The sense of he's a narcissist and I'm not. I want to invite people to be more reflective than that. One of the things that I'm doing is I'm using the language of narcissism, sort of a more contemporary psychological language to get at a really ancient phenomenon that Augustine called disordered living, that the Bible calls sin or idolatry. We have language today to name the ways that we hurt one another that I think is really important because it gets at particular kinds of dynamics, psychological dynamics individually that become collective dynamics that we all participate in. One of the stories I tell in there is of a ministry that a friend of mine was hired to lead it was a larger ministry but what he noticed within that ministry is although a very grandiose leader left it's sort of like the people within this large ministry assume that same kind of persona we do discipleship better than any other ministry in the United States no one touches our resources well we're better and more resource you know you get that sense then that we can sort of hold narcissism collectively and I certainly when you think about American culture and this sense of manifest destiny, this sense even of conquest, the conquest of a civilization to build the great civilization, the city on the hill, uh, they're probably things that we need to look at in terms of our own history, particularly for your North American listeners.
1: Yeah. So let's move more towards culture and institutions. What is the impact of narcissism on our culture and our institutions? It's really easy to keep this at the individual level. And as I read the book, you know, being an individualist and an individual myself, of course, I'm thinking about my own life and my own experiences and the ways that I see narcissism reflected in my own heart. But I think there's also a broader thing. And your book's called When Narcissism Comes to the Church. So you're obviously invested in culture and you're invested in institutions. So what is the impact writ large of narcissism on our culture and our institutions? I think if we were all to be a bit more reflective, we'd maybe be able to own this sense that we have of
0: entitlement. Being born in the United States of America, for me, particularly as a white male, there is this sense that things should go well for me, you know, that the government should work for me, and that my taxes should work for me as well. There's a sense that I'm owed something at work. I'm owed advances, and I'm owed tenure in my particular world, right? And I don't think, at least my therapists have told me in the past, I'm not diagnosably narcissistic, right? Right. But this is where the book kind of takes a turn for people, because it invites us to ask how we ourselves participate in these cultural waters, how we swim in these cultural waters, right? Your pastor may not be diagnosably narcissistic, but there may be this sense, as one pastor confessed to me recently, that when we planted in this particular city, that we sort of had the recipe for getting the gospel out, for building the kingdom, that other churches, even historically Black churches and other churches that had been there for 100 years, 150 50 years didn't have. And his reckoning with his, let's just call it ambition, selfishness was a real reckoning. I don't think this man was diagnosably narcissistic. I don't think that his church planting team was diagnosably narcissistic, but they were swimming in the cultural waters of, you know, we can do it bigger, better, stronger, faster with our particular recipe for church planting. And I think that's worth taking a look at.
1: (laughs) It really is. you reminded me of a time when I was doing college ministry and there was a new church that was being planted that usually started with a college ministry. And I remember going to their website when they came in, probably because I was jealous and worried and all kinds of other, you know, insecurities. And on their website, it was all about how the gospel isn't at our university. People aren't reaching college students. We've got the plan. We know how to reach the students. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. We've been here for a long time. We haven't given up on college students. What you're saying there though, it's interesting to me because if I were to pull the camera back, now this might be a high level cultural analogist that's way too psychologizing. But if I pulled back the camera and I looked at kind of the modern right and left, and it's always dangerous to paint in really broad brushstrokes, I can see patterns of the kinds of narcissism that you've described in each one. I feel like on the right, we've kind of imbibed the narcissistic grandiosity of people like Donald Trump. And you're really careful in the book to say, look, I'm not gonna go diagnose people that I don't know. That's not what I'm trying to do either. But even as things like Christian nationalism have somehow recently actually become more and more mainstream, like it's an okay thing to say, there is a sense of cultural supremacy. We should be in charge. There's a right kind of tradition, a right kind of way of being in the world. And we need to make that supreme. We need to make that first. And that seems grandiose. But on the left, I I see almost the opposite, the vulnerable narcissism, which is my victim status or my status as a marginalized person is what gives me credibility, it's what gives me wisdom, and so you need to listen to me. And it's interesting because both sides seem to be arguing about what kind of person should be in charge of our country, which strikes me again as a fundamentally narcissistic (laughs) debate to be having. So I don't know, how do you respond to that? Am I
0: totally out here? There's this temptation to say it's them, it's to scapegoat, right? To point the finger, rather than saying, how's this showing up in me, right? And I think whether we're talking about a sort of more kind of conservative or traditional sort of Christianity or more progressive Christianity, whether we're talking about the right or the left, it's more how we hold our beliefs. I've got a friend named Dan White. He talks about fundamentalism being, if I can remember it, absolutism in belief, self-righteous in spirit, combative in dialogue, us versus them. Demonizing, policing ideological borders, and using shame to control, right? And I look at that and I'm like, ah, I know third way people who do that. I know centrist people who do that. I know progressive people who do that. I know fundamentalist people who do that. And how can we come to the table with some sense of humility with how we show
1: up before one another in these kinds of ways? I want to ask you, I get lumped in with the third-wayers a lot, and I don't really have much of a problem with that. How are we third-wayers narcissistic? Because I would love to have that self-reflective mode happen here. (laughs) I think as
0: Dan spells it out. It's an invitation to look less at the content of what we believe, right? And more at how we show up in the midst of it. So where there is this sense of absolutism or self-righteousness or combativeness, I don't know you, right? And so I don't know how you show up in these ways. You know, even with third-way folks, even this sense of I figured it out and you haven't. And even policing the right and the left. You know, I was talking to a friend recently who said, that's exactly how I show up. I think in my beautiful and spacious third-way place, I get to police other people. And so it was really convicting to him.
1: No, it's really convicting to me. As someone who falls very much so into that camp, I can see those uh, same patterns of behaviors. And it's something I've been trying to resist is having a superiority complex because I don't fall into these broad, far larger tribal coalitions that think I must be better, which again, maybe that's the vulnerable narcissism speaking again. I'd love to transition a bit to your own story and start with this. you know, How did you first begin thinking about narcissism? How did you first begin seeing narcissism coming to the church?
0: Well, I think it began with me and my own work. I was a pretty arrogant seminary student. I had it all figured out. I came to seminary with all the answers, if you can believe it. I was in the Presbyterian Church of America, and I think I probably could have passed the ordination exams on day one. And I was pretty confident about what I knew. And there was a really kind but very honest counseling professor at Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando who took me aside and said, Chuck, if you go into ministry like the way you are now, you'll be dangerous to the church, and you're probably already dangerous to your wife. And I was 27 years old, and I'm 52 today, and that began my journey. That day translated into tears on his office floor and some sense that I had work to do. I ended up doing a counseling program at the seminary. And one of the things that I discovered in the world that I was in, in particular, the PCA world that I was in, at the time, in the first church that I served in, was that there was this sort of emotional abuse that was happening. I didn't have the language then, but I began reading about it, and I'd been seeing it in relationships, and it was sort of a sanctioned emotional abuse in the sense that it used complementarianism. It used it, and this is not an indictment, I'm not complementarian, but I have friends who are complementarian and who wear it differently, but that it was worn in a way that had become domineering and authoritarian. But with that, there was a sense that it was sanctioning a form of emotional abuse. And here I was in my late 20s as a pastor, and I was watching this play out in ways that was really hurting women in the church and others who I was seeing. So it began in me a kind of conversation, an internal conversation about how do we deal with this ecclesially, not just therapeutically or personally. But what's our responsibility as a church? What's our responsibility as a presbytery, as a denomination to address this and how it shows up? How do we engage this around our theology? But then how do we engage it around the impact, you know? And I was off to the races at that point. In fact, I thought about doing some PhD work around the dynamics of emotional abuse. I shifted my focus at some point. But that's when the conversation around narcissism became alive for me as I saw it playing out in the
1: church. Yeah, so what is it like to be in a church run by a narcissist?
0: Yeah, I don't know that I've ever been in a church run by a narcissist, although arrogant me who thought he had it figured
1: out back in the day certainly thought the first pastor I served under was narcissistic. Okay, so let me pause you for a second, because the amount of people who I've worked with in ministry who told me or have said to me, oh, my first job was with a narcissist— is a Hmm. high, high, high number. And I'm not a particularly cynical person by nature, so I tend to believe, you know, take them at their word that I wasn't there. I don't know what's going on. But then I also start wondering, you know, to what degree is that actually right? Is that true? How many churches? It's not been my experience, but how many churches are run by a narcissist? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: This is really, really important because I wrote the book to bring some clarity to the conversation. I do think that in some cases, it has been used as a hammer, as a weapon, right? It's been weaponized in a way. I mean, I was doing some work with a particular church where they thought it would be a sort of a fait accompli that if Chuck DeGro came in, he would sort of diagnose our pastor as narcissistic. And I said, no, he's insecure. He's got some issues with control, but he's not diagnosably narcissistic. It was really disappointing, you know, but I think that what happens with those of us who've been impacted by abuse in our lives, maybe by narcissistic leadership, is we can become very black and white. And I'll say this by way of confession myself. I mean, I think that in my early days, as I was reckoning with my own pain, What trauma does is it creates a sort of black and white way of thinking where you've got to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. And at that particular time, when I think about my own story, I was healthy and he was a narcissist. I think the world is more gray than that now, you know? And I look at my own sense of certainty back in the day, and I wish that I would have operated with more humility in my first role in ministry. But it's all to say that my hope with the book was that it would lead to a conversation that would generate more humility. But I think with things like this, whenever you offer psychological definitions and words as powerful as narcissism, I understand why people, maybe someone in an abusive relationship or someone in a church where it feels like they're being hurt or harmed, will say with definitiveness, he's a narcissist. I get it.
1: If I understood you correctly, and maybe I've been misusing terms, saying or calling someone a narcissist is one thing, talking about, narcissistic tendencies or behaviors is a very different thing. So, I mean, even throughout this podcast, I keep saying things like, well, I see that kind of narcissism in me. I'm saying, hey, I see those kinds of narcissistic behaviors. I haven't been clinically diagnosed as a narcissist. I certainly hope I'm not. But is that a fair differentiation that, yes, there's a clinical narcissist, but there's also narcissistic behaviors. And so we can talk about narcissism in the church without necessarily saying that pastor is a narcissist.
0: That's absolutely right. And I think I'm thankful for this. One of the things that people have said that has been helpful about the book is that I use the idea of a spectrum of narcissism, not my invention. It comes from a tool that I use, a test called the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory. And I've got a file. I'm not going to show you it right here, but I've <laughs> got it. A- 15 years of doing this kind of testing. Now, narcissism is within cluster B personality disorders, which includes antisocial and histrionic and borderline. 15 years of testing of pastors where the large majority, 80% or more, are within the cluster B spectrum. So people going into ministry, pastors going into ministry, are not in cluster A, odd or eccentric personality disorders. They're not generally in cluster C, dependent or avoidant. They tend to be more... Dramatic. They tend to be more grandiose in their personality, right? And there is this sense that we presume that we can get on stage. And we can say, this is the word of the Lord and preach a text to preach on behalf of God, in a sense, right? Call ourselves reverend and wear robes and stoles and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. That was one of the things that I found most helpful in the book. I think in part because it felt like a way of laying the weapons down, because this word does get thrown around like a bomb or it's used like a weapon. In an interesting way, it actually reflects the conversation around race. No one wants to be called a racist. And so you've got a whole subset of people who never want to talk about Race, lest they end up being called a racist. Whereas I would say, well, look, you may or may not be a racist, but you probably, because you're a sinner who has all kinds of things in your heart that are broken, you do have some racist thoughts, some racist tendencies, some racist behaviors that you need to acknowledge. That's not the same thing as being a full blown racist, right? And if we can't differentiate those two, we can't even begin to have the conversation about the next layer of those feelings in our hearts. And so that's what I loved about this book. So I just want to say, yes, the spectrum thing was incredibly helpful. And I think on the other level is that it means that we're not treating narcissism as something out there. We can actually treat narcissism as something in here. I'm, I'm pointing at my heart because people are listening to that, <laughs> And so maybe we could shift the conversation a little bit and, and help people to see whether or not they're actually narcissists, some of those narcissistic patterns of behavior or desires in their hearts by talking a little bit about your work on the Enneagram. Now, not everybody listening to this is going to be familiar with the Enneagram. So don't turn it off. You're going to get something out of this, whether or not you can say what number on the Enneagram you personally are, because what you're describing is kind of a full or rounded out experience of how different kinds of people experience narcissism. So I would love to start with what you talk about as people whose sinful dysfunction is often powered by a deep sense of shame. So on the Enneagram, these are twos, threes, and fours. So how do people driven by shame in particular experience narcissism?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. So You know, I think that every Enneagram type is dealing with sort of unmetabolized shame in a sense when they're functioning in unhealth. But there is this sort of unique manifestation within the twos, threes, and fours where we do tend to kind of bring our deep questions about ourselves to others in relationship, right? In a way that, you know, five, six, and sevens as head types go to information and intellectual resourcing. And so, as we bring these deep questions to one another, there is this sense that we're asking one another to sort of fix us, you know, to address our shame. Like when I got married 28 years ago, there was a sense, I didn't know it at the time, and I didn't have a good enough premarriage marriage counseling pastor to tell me, but like, Chuck, you're bringing deep questions of your soul to Sarah and asking her to address them. And a lot of that was a deep sense of shame and security that we see in twos, threes, and fours manifesting in this kind of relational voraciousness, like, give me, give me, give me, feed me, meet this need, fill the void, right? And so I think one of the ways that this conversation is helpful, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that too often our confession of sin is general. In other words, it's like, I'm just a sinner, big old (laughs) sinner, versus what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, hey, when we talk about sin, I think psychological language can be helpful, and the different manifestations of it, like the unique manifestation of the sin of the two and giving to get. Well, that's revelatory if you're a two, you know, so you might not be as grandiose. You may not need the stage like a three might need the stage or an eight might need the stage. But in your activism or in your helping, there is this kind of raciousness. Feed me, feed me, reflect back to me something that will fill my sense of void or deficiency.
1: Yeah. So a sense of, I will serve, I will give, but I have all of these expectations. Someone the once called expectations unspoken demands from you in return for the service that I've delivered. I need to be celebrated by you. I need to be known as a certain kind of person. You already said that's also present in threes and fours. I am either a three wing four or a four wing three. It kind of depends on the day. I feel like I'm so 50 50 <laughs> on the both of them. But what you described there about this constant voracious need to be fed by relationships is so true. David Foster Wallace had this phrase to describe his depression. He called it a black hole with teeth. And it stuck with me for a long time because I can't quite articulate why it's right, but it's exactly what you just said. In my most unhealthy moments, I'm a black hole that just wants to suck in all of the light of praise and you're great and you're amazing and aren't you special and aren't you different if I'm in a form <laughs> and all of those things. But you know, a black hole devours the light, right? It crushes the light. The light, I don't know what happens to black holes, but in my mind, it ceases to exist. And so there's never enough. You can't ever fill up a black hole. And so that's how the narcissistic tendencies, at least in me, end up getting expressed is trying to, with my false self, draw in the light of that praise and adoration and that individuality. Would you say anything else to threes and fours? You kind of mentioned twos.
0: Yeah, well, you know, threes are often, they're put out there as sort of a prototypical narcissist, right? Poor threes, they sort of get a
1: bad rap, right? Well, here's the thing with threes, everybody wants to be a three. Everyone wants to be a three, or 7. Yeah, 3 or 7, those are two of the most ideal personality types. So I always talk to people who be like, "Oh yeah, I'm definitely a 3." And it's kind of funny because I know and be like, "Hey, I'm not sure you are. Whatever type you are in the Enneagram, you don't want to be." Like you would desperately just say, "I don't want that." And Like when I look at 3s, I'm like, "Good gosh, please no." <laughs> but anyway, sorry, keep going. What would you say to them?
0: I mean, in a sense, they do fit sometimes that more classic sort of grandiose narcissism, right? They are more performative. They do like the stage. The 4s don't fit that grandiose narcissism quite as much. I would identify as a four-wing three. And there is this sort of smug superiority. Fours can be emotionally manipulative, right? And there is this desperate need to be seen as special. And so each one of those types, twos, threes, and fours, have their own unique ways of getting their needs met.
1: The four will do it in a more passive-aggressive and backhanded way than the three, though. But deep down, the driver is like you said, a sense of shame or I'm not enough, I'm worthless. And I'm hoping, I'm praying that you, whether it's your wife or your boss or your friends or the people on Twitter, that you would just say something that proves that that deep down thing isn't true. And of course, the false self is out there to get people to say the things to you that you want, which can become so narcissistic. Yeah, that's it. Well said. Let's move on to five, six, and seven. You talk about these as people who are in the anxiety triad or the head triad. So they're driven a lot by anxiety. So how do people driven by anxiety experience narcissism?
0: I think if I go back and have a do-over, I would have talked about it as unmetabolized shame that leads to a kind of buzzing anxiety within amidst a deep sense of insecurity. And so if unmetabolized shame in twos, threes, and fours leads to this kind of relational voraciousness, um, five, six sixes, and sevens, it leads to this kind of deep sense of insecurity and anxiety about the world. And they go up into their heads for some sense of control in the midst of their anxiety. Like, it gives them some sense of, I'm okay up here, you know? And so, I've worked with a lot of fives over the years who found their way to their room, to the closet in their room. You know, maybe at like seven years old, they were reading Tolkien by flashlight, you know? But it felt safe. And inevitably or often i should say maybe not inevitably there's some sense that i was protecting myself from the drama or the pain or whatever was going on around me sixes organized their world in and through rules they learned what am i supposed to do you know so they became i call them hawkeyes sometimes this is the jason born of the enneagram types they walk into the room and they see everything that could possibly go wrong to maintain some sense of control Whereas in a really interesting way, the sevens, they go up into their heads by becoming sort of optimistic visionaries. And this is, by the way, Claudio Naranjo, an early sort of Enneagram founder, sage, called the sevens the kind of classic narcissist, right? Because this is the disconnected visionary at his worst with a kind of brooding anger, but sort of always living in the future, always living for what's next,
1: yeah. So if I'm understanding you correctly, people in this triad, like you said, they have the same unmetabolized shame as a lot of everybody else <laughs> does, but it's expressed or it's protected in some ways through anxiety, which is then expressed through a desire to control. We had Bob Goff on the show and he says he's an Enneagram 7 and you know he made this comment and it just shows like how different people are because it made no sense to me. But you know, he said that when he feels like little Bob, like kid version of Bob and he's insecure, his response is I've got to make things fun. Like that's the way he can control the situation and kind of deal with his anxieties. I just got to make things fun. And I thought that is so weird. You know, that makes no sense to me, but it's because he's so different (laughs) than I am. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to talk about fives one more time because fives are a personality type that I've often found I have a difficult time understanding. It's just totally selfish. I know six as well because my wife is a six and I spend a lot of time with sixes. Honestly, sixes kind of make me feel safe. So... (laughs) (laughs) Because they are so Hawkeye, like it's easy. If you're a three and you have insecurities, you go find yourself a six and they make sure that everything stays, you know, kind of safe and steady. But how do fives express this?
0: Yeah, sort of as the intellectual know-it-all They go up into their heads and they gain a mastery over whatever particular topic, let's say in our world, over their theology, right? And they operate with a kind of superiority and a condescension amidst that. So, whenever you see a tendency toward narcissism, there's a lack of humility and a kind of self-righteousness that appears. But this self-righteousness is around, I I know more than you. And my experience of fives, and I've read this before too, is that they've got big eyes, they see everything, you know, they've got kind of that all-know. Glare. I sometimes feel because I'm a four that can feel really teeny tiny sometimes, you know, in the presence of a really smart five, I can feel really small, like I know what I'm doing right now. I don't know what I'm talking about compared <laughs> to you, you know,
1: yeah. But in all these cases, those would in some senses be expressions of the false self. We have this deep down shame because we've broken our relationship with God. We've sinned against him and we feel disconnected from him. And look, that can create shame, which then is covered up with anxiety and fear, which is then covered up with this desire to control. And I can control it with how much I know or with how much I'm able to kind of keep all the puzzle pieces together or how much fun I can have. This is really helpful for me as I'm thinking about people and just showing grace to people who are different than me, because it's always easier to see this in someone else (laughs) than it is to see it in yourself.
0: Yeah, our relational violations of one another show up in different ways, right? So we didn't talk about nines yet. Maybe we
1: will, right? But like- Yeah, let's go there. Let's do eight, nines, and ones. So people who are driven by anger and how do they experience narcissism?
0: In the midst of their unmetabolized shame, there is a kind of fortress wall that goes up for I think eights, nines, and ones, a self-protective wall that distances them from others. And I do think that- When we talk about nines, nines are always, oh, nines, they're so nice. They're so kind, you know, but I do think that in the same way, there is this kind of wall that goes up. They operate through a kind of, let's keep everything good. Let's keep the peace, right? in a way that doesn't invite relationship, doesn't invite connection, but keeps them safe, right? And so nines need to sort of reckon with the way that they keep themselves safe and they keep others at a distance. And there can be, and what I've seen in unhealthy nines on the kind of narcissistic spectrum, there can be a kind of quiet rage that builds up. I think it's Suzanne Stabile that talks about they store arrows in their quiver, Maybe it's Marilyn Vansel, but whoever it is, they store arrows in their quiver. My wife is a nine. My wife is the kindest, gentlest person I know. But on occasion, there can be just a little like poke, you know, the Oh, where has that been for the last two years, you know, but they can also passive aggressively shut you out. And there's a power in that, you know, that nines have where it's just kind of like, I'm not going to show up like the eight. I'm not going to get aggressive. No, I'm not going to challenge. I was just talking to a buddy of mine who's an eight. He says, I shadow box every day with people that I can fight in my head. You know, like I'm fighting with people in my head, even if I'm not fighting with people in real life nines don't fight with people in real life but there is a kind of fight within ones you know their narcissistic superiority looks at a desire to perfect others which of course with their unmetabolized shame also needs to reckon with their own sense of shame, right? Their own insecurity, their own lack of worth, right? And so, having been in Reformed Presbyterian circles, I've seen a lot of one energy show up in this kind of lawyerly, self-righteous, you know, this is the way God would have it, right? With a kind of superiority.
1: And I think you're right because the narcissism of eights is often the most visible of the three in some ways because they can be challengers and they can come across as angry or frustrated and controlling. Probably next up would be ones who can come across also as controlling or as self-righteous or as I've got the answers. And nines, like you said, are often difficult to be around. But, you know, even in my own experience, a narcissistic nine in some ways can be one of the most difficult personalities to respond to because on the surface, they seem so peaceable, but underneath they're roiling. And when that roiling anger comes out, it can be used to whip other people into obedience in shocking ways. And that's what I appreciate about this whole thing is that on the one hand, it helps me have eyes to see narcissistic behaviors in other people. And my broader hope here is that if you're listening to this, you saw yourself in some of these things <laughs> and you're like, man, I have some of those narcissistic patterns of behavior that I need to maybe start resolving and thinking through, but maybe even dig it down a layer and say, what's driving me? What's motivating me? Going down even a layer deeper and saying, hey, what is that deep shame and insecurity I have? You know, and going down a deep layer and seeing the theological undergirding of that, which is... I've sinned against a holy God and that's created a rupture in relationship that has this kind of fragmenting, fractalizing effect in every dimension of my life. That is a really powerful tool, in my opinion, just for self-reflection and for hopefully finding healing. So what would you say to that, though, to the person who's hearing themselves in one of these personalities or a few of them? How do you seek healing?
0: Well, I mean, it's important to recognize in all of this that sometimes when we talk about sin, we think about it as a one-off behavior rather than taking it with a more deadly seriousness, you might say, with a greater sobriety, as if to say it manifests more in a relational style that, of course, then manifests in one-off ways that we hurt one another, right? But if we don't look at our relational style, we miss an opportunity for that deeper healing that you were talking about, right? And so when I've gone into churches and done this work with pastors, for instance, they'll be quick to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was in that meeting, I spoke over her. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. You know, with a lot of anxiety, like just wanting to get through it. I want to say, hey, let's just step back and ask the question, is there a pattern here? Is there a relational pattern that shows up? where you have this tendency maybe to talk over people in a variety of different ways, and they are always operating out of a kind of anxiety that leads you to shut others down. That's when the conversation gets, to me, more interesting, more vulnerable. I think that's where, as Bonhoeffer might say, confession becomes more specific, and where there's this sense that the person doing the work on themselves, engaging a what Christianity has classically called self-examination, where there's this kind of humility that grows. Like, oh, the rabbit hole goes deeper than I thought it did. And there's stuff that I need to look at. And I can sort of even trace this back to ways in which I began to show up in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, you know, amidst all the drama that was going on with mom and dad and in my family and me being the middle kid. And, oh, that really helps me understand how I live and move and have
1: my being even today, And it highlights for me just how deep repentance can go into our lives. When that pastor speaks over that woman, the worst thing that could happen is that he just never says anything, never repents of anything, right? And so it's far better to go to her and say, hey, I'm sorry I spoke over you. But if you've had those experiences, you'll know that they can sometimes be unsatisfying Not that the goal of repentance is to satisfy the other person. The goal of repentance is to admit that you've done something wrong and ask for their forgiveness. But it's unsatisfying because that person's like, yes, you did something wrong. But I sense and I want you to know that there's also something deeper here. And that's where real relationship can start forming when you're able to go to someone you love and say, yeah, I did something wrong. But that is the symptom of a far deeper disease that I need to repent of with you. I mean, I even think about this as a parent. You know, I think I'm like a lot of people. I don't really remember my parents apologizing too much to me. It's something I try to do more with my kids kids. But as I think about that in my relationship with my kids is realizing, gosh, my repentance has to even go a layer deeper with them of not just dad did something wrong, but hey, my way of being oriented towards you has been broken and I need to change this and I'm sorry for it. I
0: talk about this in the book, but I always try to say it in conversations like this is one of the most important questions we can ask others is how do you experience me? and to be attentive to not just the one-off experience of me, but how that shows up in a patterned way in my own life. And I've learned a ton. That began for me in my late 20s in that seminary counseling program with women who were in the program who knew me as a Master of Divinity student said, let me tell you how I experienced you, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like you're particularly safe. You show up in a condescending way. And that began a journey for me of, oh my goodness, wow. So this isn't just like a one-off thing where I get like a Uh, my repentance, get out of jail free card. Like this is a lifelong journey of repentance, right? That this is a deep work. And by the way, that continues to show up even today. I mean, so many years later and I can still fall
1: into the same relational patterns. That's so true. It's so good. It's a great question to ask the people around you who love you and know you. So thank you so much for being with us today, Chuck. It's been fantastic to talk to you. I really appreciate your book. How can people follow you, see what you're doing, get access to the book?
0: Yeah, so my website is chuckdegrove.net, and just about everything is there in terms of what I do, the counseling I do, my writings, and things like that. I teach at Western Theological Seminary, where I think we do a really beautiful job of forming pastors for the kinds of difficulties, challenges of ministry today. And so you can find me at Western Theological Seminary on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the rest, and sometimes on Patrick's podcast.
1: <laughs> well, I hope you go and follow what Chuck's doing. Check out his book when narcissism comes to the church. It's been fantastic talking with you. Could we just end with you praying for our audience? Yeah, let's pray, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are deeply concerned about the uh,
0: the priests and shepherds of Israel doing harm to the flock, and you are no less concerned today. Um, and as a minister of the gospel myself, I'm humbled by. Um, strong words um, and words that uh, convict me of the possibility that I might engage in harm in ways that I'm not even aware of. So I pray for humility. I pray for curiosity. The two, I think, in some ways, the two biggest manifestations of of the kind of sanctification that happens in people who are doing the hard work of self examination, where there is anxiety around these things, particularly for those of us who uh, are in the crosshairs of this conversation, uh, particularly who, for those of us who have a lot invested in maintaining the structures and the status of, of the church uh, that we've built. Um, may we be uh, available to the reckoning, even in our own lives. May we grow in humility and curiosity, even that if that involves loss, um, even if that involves humiliation of some kind, um, and may from the ashes, may you build your church in a new and in fresh ways and with leadership that uh, uh, loves you and loves neighbor and loves the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks so much for being with us today.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. See you next
1: time.